All right, and while children are dismissed, we invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. Isaiah 53, I love singing the Christmas carols and songs with you today and love hearing you sing praise to the Lord. Uh, uh, So we're looking forward to being able to do that again next Sunday. Again, one last plug for next Sunday. I know it is Christmas Day and I know there are a lot of plans. I even heard that there's rumor of snow, which on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, which, you know, in the South means we should cancel right now. Um, uh, But we're praying that that snow goes away and we can worship the Lord for one hour or so on Christmas Day uh, as you're able to, uh, to be able to come and worship Him uh, on the Lord's Day and uh, rejoice in who He is. Um, Last week, uh, we... Uh, continued our brief study of Old Testament texts that point forward to the birth and ministry of Jesus by looking at a text in the book of Isaiah. If you remember correctly, I took a good deal of time, maybe too much time, I don't know, we'll see, uh, a good bit of time to look at the background of the book of Isaiah and especially to consider how Isaiah formed uh, his large 66 chapter book, how it's structured, how it comes to us. Isaiah's book comes in two parts, uh, chapters 1 through 39, the first half, uh, are words of judgment and condemnation for God's people before the exile, before they went off to Babylon uh, under exile and judgment. And then uh, the second half of Isaiah's book is Isaiah 40 through 66, which are words of consolation. That's what you often see it uh, labeled uh, among commentaries, uh, words of consolation or comfort. Uh, for God's people, both during the exile, when they're in Babylon, uh, and after. Okay, so Isaiah imagines a day in the future when Israel's there in Babylon, away from their home, and he designs these chapters to encourage them while they're there and then after they return. Isaiah 40 through 66 last week, we said, is divided into three nine-chapter parts. Three nine-chapter parts. Uh, In chapters 40 through 48, you have God's deliverance for the people from Babylonian exile, mainly through the ministry of a Persian king by the name of Cyrus. Then the second division of this second half of the book is words of deliverance from sin. Salvation from sin. I think primarily through the ministry of Jesus, the coming servant of God, and especially in Jesus' first coming. And then the final section of Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, uh, the final nine chapters are about, I believe, about Jesus' second coming and the deliverance that comes when uh, the finally faithful servants of God, uh, children of Israel, become a blessing to all the nations. Uh, at the second coming of Christ. In the second half, we took some time also last week to consider four specific passages that talk about God's anointed special servant who would come to deliver his people. Those four special passages are called the servant songs. Again, there are four of them. Uh, And last week, we saw the first servant song in Isaiah 42. 
Among other things in Isaiah 42, we learned that the special servant of God will be upheld by God. He is chosen by God, and he was the object of God's special delight. Don't, don't you love that part of Isaiah 42? The one in whom my soul delights. God's Spirit will rest on this anointed servant, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Then in verses 3 and 4, we saw that although he was gentle, you remember how the text describes him in his gentleness? Uh, it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Although he's gentle in his coming, the special servant will accomplish all of God's purposes. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So that in a final summary at the end of that sermon last week, I said you could basically summarize it this way. This servant will be strong and kind. And then we, we sang a song about our strong and kind servant. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to look up that sermon, uh, to take up the handout, maybe study Isaiah on your own, the handout from last week, and and consider that first servant song. Now today, we're going to begin a two-part series on the fourth of the servant songs. It starts at the end of Isaiah 52, the last three verses, and it goes through all of chapter 53. This is the fourth and last servant song. This passage is a poem, some people think a song, containing 15 verses in five three-verse stanzas. I wish we had the music for this. We could sing it. That would be memorable, especially if I let it. Uh, you'd never forget that. But th- five three-verse stanzas. This is the longest of the servant songs that talk about God's special anointed servant. And it brings those songs to their ultimate peak. The significance of this song is undisputed. Uh, For some, they call this song, Isaiah 53, and the three verses before it, they call it the fifth gospel. Because it so clearly points forward to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every verse of Isaiah 53, except one, is quoted in the New Testament. In this short little chapter. Many of them are quoted on multiple occasions. Someone went through the entire New Testament, and they put this in a little index in the back of a Greek New Testament, and said that there are at least 32 different New Testament texts that allude to Isaiah chapter 52, or 53. This song picks up momentum uh, with each successive stanza, so that As you go along, each stanza gets longer and longer in content, and I think more and more profound. And so I want to read this whole song with you together, and uh, while I don't normally do this uh, today, if you are physically able to stand, I would invite you to stand as we receive this word from the Lord and consider it together. Isaiah chapter 52, and I'll start reading in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, 
His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall He sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what He has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. While we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, living, stricken, For the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You may be seated.
Well, we will divide this sermon up in, this text up into two sermons, one this week and one during the family service next Christmas. Um, I want to look at uh, chapter 52 from verse 13 down through chapter 5 and verse 6 this morning. One of the single most important observations I can give you about this passage is for you to stop and to think and to read through this passage from the perspective of who is speaking in each stanza. Uh, I have not seen this clearly in the commentary literature, although I'm sure some of them just assume it. I'm just so slow, I need someone to just like tell me. So if you're like me, this is what I think is going on. In the grand introduction, at the end of chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, God is speaking. You could put quotation marks around that. I think God is addressing the servant and the reader. Uh, Normally the reader, uh, for a little piece, will address his servant. Then he'll break off from that. But normally he's addressing the readers. Okay, so it starts with God speaking, or you could say singing. In chapter 53, verses 1 through 6, the speaker is different. It's Israel, the people of Israel. God, Isaiah is imagining future Israel singing about God's servant, what they've learned. Then, verses 7 through 9, he returns to God speaking. Verses 10 and 11 are Isaiah the prophet giving his words into this, and then it closes with God speaking again. You say, I didn't get all that. Believe me, I'm going to remind you all throughout the sermon today and next Sunday. Okay? But the grand introduction starts with God. God is speaking or singing here at the end of chapter 52. Things come from his perspective to the reader. Um, and the topic is his servant. In verse 14, as I said, he momentarily addresses the servant by calling him you. But then he's normally addressing the reader. Okay, so we look at chapter 50, 52 and start in verse 13. Um, he starts out with, behold my servant. That should sound familiar because that exact same language was used at the beginning of chapter 42 that we studied last week. Behold my servant. Look at, consider my servant. God is calling Israel to consider his servant. But again, there's controversy about who the, his servant is. Okay, among Jewish scholars, the servant is Israel. And among many evangelicals and many liberal Christians as well, the servant is Israel, okay? Um, this text doesn't clearly answer it, but um, I would invite you to turn to a New Testament text that does. Turn in your Bibles, keep your finger here, turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. So again, just very briefly, who is this servant? Right? So we want to know who the servant is. That question is answered authoritatively in the New Testament Scripture as long as you believe in the inspiration and authority of the New Testament Scriptures, which I do. Acts chapter 8, look at verse 30. Perhaps you remember this chapter. Philip the evangelist is called from the city of Damascus, and, 
And there's a, a, a major work of God that was happening there, but God wants him to leave the city and the work of God and go out into the wilderness. And once he gets out into the wilderness, he comes upon a man, an Ethiopian, a eunuch. And he hears this Ethiopian reading scripture in his chariot. Okay, and that's where we pick up the story. So, verse 30, Acts 8, verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading which prophet? Isaiah. Great. That's who we're talking about today. Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? What passage do you think he's reading? Isaiah 53, verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. That's exactly what we're supposed to do too. Tell people the good news about Jesus. We start in this scripture, Isaiah 53, and others like it, and we tell people about Jesus. Okay, so let's go back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Who is God's servant? It's Jesus. Now, God starts his description in verse, uh, chapter 52 and verse 13 the same way he's going to end it with the exaltation, the lifting high of this servant. And uh, everything starts out well in verse 13. It's looking great, but things will quickly pivot in this introduction and throughout the song. We'll go back and forth between exaltation, the lifting high, and then the humiliation of God's servant throughout. But we start in verse 13. It says, first, he shall act wisely. God's servant shall act wisely. This speaks of both his knowledge and his behavior. The servant will always act in conformity to wisdom in order to accomplish God's purposes in this world. As God addresses this song to the reader, the reader can count on this. God's servant will act wisely. Okay. And so on account of God, all, God's servant always acting in wisdom, okay, the next thing God does is he assigns Three words to say what will ultimately become of him. He will be, and you're looking at verse, you know, I'm not making this up, right? Verse 13. He shall be high, lifted up, it's one word in the original, and exalted. That's what's going to happen to the servant. Now, the word exalted, the final word there, is not a common word in Isaiah's book. It's not a common word in all of Scripture. And so we might need to use the rest of Scripture to figure out when is God's special anointed servant exalted? I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to be able to answer that question about Jesus. But the words high and lifted up are used repeatedly in the book of Isaiah. And so I want to show you how they're typically used. They're used together in reference to one being. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. 
And let me just show you some of these passages where high and lifted up are used of a being, and we'll try to figure out who this person is. Isaiah 6 and verse 1. The calling of Isaiah. Perhaps you remember this. Whom shall I send and who will go? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Well, before that, Isaiah has a vision of the heavenly throne room of God. And he's called up and there's seraphim. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy. Well, this is how that passage starts. Look at Isaiah 6 and verse 1. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Here, this is the first reference of high and lifted up in Isaiah, and it controls all the other uses throughout the book. God is the high and lifted up one sitting in his holy temple. Okay, now go to Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah 33, verse 10. Isaiah 33, verse 10. We're still in the first half of the book. We're looking for the terms high and lifted up, and Here we have an address from God. Isaiah 33, verse 10 says, Now will I arise, says the Lord. See the quotation marks around the first part of this? Now I will arise, so the Lord speaking. It continues. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Alright, so about this high and holy God... Yahweh will lift up himself so that he's exalted. Again, the two terms are used in reference to God. Go one other place in the book, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Perhaps this discovery isn't as exciting for you as it was for me. I'm thrilled by this. Maybe I gave too much away at the beginning whenever I talked about who's, who's, who's the one who's high and lifted up. But look at Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who's of contrite and lowly spirit. Revive the heart of the contrite. Here at the, near the end of second section of the second half of Isaiah, Isaiah is introducing God, and he intentionally echoes chapter 6. You know the one that I'm talking about, the high and the lifted up one. Go back to Isaiah 53 now. Somehow this servant of God will achieve the same title That is only given to God in the book of Isaiah. At his exaltation, I believe, he will be high and lifted up. Imagine the original reader as he's reading through this. He's read about the high and lifted up one in chapter 6. And he's, he's only left to ponder how a human being, how a human servant might achieve the same status as the one whose robe filled the holy temple of heaven. 
it, God is just getting started about his descriptions of the servant in the introduction to the song. You go to verse 14, then he goes in a radically different direction. He continues by saying that many will be astonished at the servant. When you come to verse 14 in your Bible, um, you come to a difficult, difficult syntax, a broken sentence that he never really finishes. He's addressing it to the servant. Many will be astonished at you. And then he gives two statements about that, and he doesn't finish the sentence. And so we, we walk through this to understand more of the point that God is making here. First, we, we start with the word astonished, which speaks of extreme reaction, either extreme joy or extreme horror. And you really have to look at the immediate context to figure out which of those or anything in between that it is. Well, this extreme reaction comes because the appearance and form of this servant will be marred beyond any human resemblance. You see, when this servant comes, he will be treated so harshly that people will not only be asking, is this the servant? They'll be asking, is this a human? Human. So people will be astonished, horrified, appalled by what happens to the appearance and the form of this precious servant. Now fast forward to the New Testament, to how it describes the crucifixion of Jesus. Of course, one of the worst forms of affliction that Jesus faced, no doubt, came from the brutal scourging or whipping that he endured. He was bent over, bare back, and whipped with leather straps, knotted on the end with glass and sharp pieces of stone tied in. Many criminals... Other human beings could not even withstand this form of torture for the other torture that would follow. Results of Jesus' scourging, no doubt, was a bloody, mixed web of strips of flesh and muscle and ligaments so that onlookers might wonder if such a thing was actually a human being. But what an excruciating pain he bore. And although this picture is graphic in Isaiah 53, I think, men and women, it's good for us to stop and to meditate and to consider the cost that he paid. God's final thought about the servant in his introduction transitions back positively in verse 15. He's going to return to descriptions of the humiliation and the suffering of Jesus later. But in verse 15, by this great act of mutilation and disfigurement, he says the servant will sprinkle many nations and thus kings will have their mouths shut. Okay, so 
Verse 15, we come to a little bit harder description to understand. In verse 14, people will shut their mouths in horror over what becomes of God's servant. But in verse 15, kings of the earth, great men of this world, will shut their mouths because of the mysterious sprinkling of many nations that's mentioned in this passage. Okay, and so that leaves us with trying to figure out what this sprinkling means. Right? What's this sprinkling of many nations? And how does that shut kings' mouths? Okay, and so do you have any idea? What's the sprinkling? This is the sort of stuff you know, that a pastor has to spend like hours pouring over. How about you? I think you got it. Now, if you're an ancient Jew, Jewish person, I think this sprinkling would have priestly overtones. When something or someone was sprinkled with blood or oil or water, it was cleansed or sanctified. Remember a few weeks ago, we studied Leviticus 16. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies once annually to deal with residual sins, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and the altar to sanctify and cleanse it. And so the sprinkling many nations probably has something to do with the servant of God coming to cleanse or purify them by the sprinkling of blood. Now, I think we can do even better than this, and so I invite you to turn to one other passage, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. What is this sprinkling of many nations that shuts the mouth of kings? Book of Hebrews, of course, the author keeps making the case for the superiority of the blood of Jesus over the blood of the Old Covenant sacrifices. I want you to look with me at Hebrews 8, 12, uh, I'm sorry, and verse 18. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and to the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages should be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches this mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You remember when I preached this years ago? Was it years? Months ago? However long ago. What words did Abel's blood demand? Remember in Genesis? Blood cried out from the ground, right? Demanding vengeance, judgment. What does the sprinkled blood of Jesus cry out? Think of the song. Forgive, oh forgive 
they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. Sprinkled blood, no doubt, is in reference to the blood of Jesus that cleanses many nations, people from many nations, so that even kings or great men have their mouths shook. Shut. Nothing to say when they see this. Go back to Isaiah 53. All of that is the song's introduction. You can see why I broke this up into two sermons, perhaps, right now, or we would be here until Christmas. <laughs> As the song or the poem continues in chapter 53, at the beginning of the chapter, there is a transition so that the voice or the speaker is now different. God rests after the introduction, and now a group, an unidentified group, takes over, okay? You can see this by the pronoun we and our. They keep describing things as we, us, our, our transgressions, our iniquities. We didn't esteem him, so who's singing now? Um, Again, I'm glad for the New Testament and those New Testament quotes because two of those passages, John 12 and Romans 10, Described to us that the speaker here is Israel. God revealed his powerful arm to Israel in the work of his servant Jesus. But who believed it? Report came from among the people of Israel, I think through the prophets, but very few of them believed. And so Isaiah is looking ahead here to future Israel, or maybe future believing Israel, and the song that they will sing about the true nature of the servant, verses 1 through 6. Okay, so now I want to read these verses and think about it in that way. Verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew, we, uh, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of, dry, out of dry grounds. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So I want to look at these verses with you. We'll go quickly through them. In verse 1, they, they ask, I believe, believing Israel, future believing Israel, asks two questions, and then they answer it in verses 2 through 5. They answer these questions. It's kind of like three movements in their chorus, or three verses to the song, right, that, that Israel's singing about the servant. First, in verse 2, they say that they missed it because uh, the servant was not majestic in appearance. Here Isaiah uses three words to describe the humble appearance of the servant. He had no form, word one, no majesty, and no beauty. 
This, of course, is coming from Israel. He had no form, majesty, or beauty. One commentator said, normally deliverers are dominating, forceful, attractive people who by their personal magnetism draw people to themselves and convince people to do what they want them to do. That's not the case with this servant of God. He comes forth, as the text says, as a young little plant or a tiny root in dry grounds. There was no halo over the head of this servant. There was no shining disc like you see in some of the paintings of the saints. By the way, there there wasn't truly a shining disc behind those human beings, those saints. And the same was true of the servant of Jesus. Most of Jesus' contemporaries missed his significance because of his humble beginnings and appearance and his demeanor. And so they say, we missed it because he was not majestic in appearance. And then in verse 3, the second verse of their song, they say, not only did humanity despise him, we failed again to understand him. As far as humanity goes in verse 3, Isaiah foresees that they will despise and reject the servant. They will hide their faces from him because he will be a man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief. I think the idea here is the sorrows, plural, is this is a man whose chief characteristic will be sorrow. The servant will be known by others for his painful experience. Say it this way, he was not casually associated with some sorrow. No, he was acquainted with grief. And this excruciating, identifying suffering will cause mankind to turn away. They won't even want to look at him in those moments. Have you ever seen something so horrific that you turned away? Because you couldn't watch it. Maybe an accident. Or a movie, a made-up thing. And you knew what was coming. And so you hid your face. That's what mankind does with the man of sorrows. In that moment, they hide their face. But then Israel concludes their second verse by saying, and coming back to themselves, and we esteemed him not. We is Israel. They will not esteem him. Esteem is an accounting word speaking of reckoning up the value of something or someone. They did not properly account for him either. And they'll tell us more about that in verses 4 and 5. So in verses 4 and 5, they explain again, that we misunderstand the nature of this suffering servant. Despite an assured reality, Israel wrongly evaluates him again. And although this servant carries or bears their grief and sorrow, he's a man of sorrows, not just his own, but the sorrows and the grief of his people, Israel, many future Israelites will feel that God is striking or smiting him because of his own sins. Although it's truly because of their transgressions and sins, they do the math improperly and they say, surely this this guy is being judged by God. 
Instead, the text says that he will be pierced and crushed by God because of their transgressions and iniquities. The word pierced is vivid. He will be pierced. It could be translated. Some translations do it this way. He will be pierced through. The servant will be pierced through for our sins. The word crushed maybe is even stronger. It suggests at least breaking into pieces or in some cases even pulverizing something. The word is not normally used of a human being. But when it is, it's gory beyond compare. That's how serious God takes sin. He crushed his own son for it. Yet so often, we're so casual about our sin, right? Our mistakes, that's what we call them, mistakes, shortcomings. God does not think casually about these things. God crushed this servant for the sins of of his people Israel, so that his chastisement, his punishment would bring peace or wholeness to them. Indeed, Israel says it was through his wounds that we were healed. Again, fast forwarding to the event of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, you know, when we watch a fight, Sometimes the loser's face is twice the regular size uh, at the end of the fight. See the boxers afterwards with cuts all over their face and cheeks and ears. And that's with 10 and 12 ounce gloves. But when we read about our Savior, he was struck with bare-fisted hands and wooden rods. These wounds, then, the text says, bring us healing as we continue to read. Finally, in verse 6, Isaiah has Israel giving, I think, one final summative chorus about their part in all of this. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just got a few more things to say here. All Israel will be, Isaiah says here, like sheep going astray. They will wander away following their own way. Now, I'm not a farmer. Okay, I don't understand the nature of sheep very well. I did watch an online video recently, saw one on Facebook, about sheep. Did you see that video about the sheep that fell in the ditch? This is a pretty popular one. And then along comes someone to grab the sheep, grabs it by its leg, and somehow gets it out of this, and then, remember what happens? You saw this? Some of you feel completely left out, sorry. But at least you're awake now, right? What happens? Sheep gets out, takes like two or three prances and you know, dances away, and then boom, right back in the ditch again, worse than before. 
In ancient times, comparing someone to a sheep was not a compliment. Uh, the old, uh, I, think, I think Puritan writer Thomas Manton uh, helped us understand why this animal might have been chosen here. I just want to read you a little bit of what he said. He said, sheep is used uh, for our inability to return or bring ourselves into the right way again. It is like a sheep, not like a swine or a dog. These creatures can find their way home again. But a sheep is irrecoverably lost without the shepherd's diligence and care. (laughs) For some reason that just struck a humorous chord for me. Why is the sheep mentioned? Because he can't find his way back. He just keeps wandering off after the next clump of grass. So he falls over a cliff or something. That's the people of Israel as they related to the servant of God. But then one last description of what happens with the servant in verse 6, the end of verse 6. Yahweh lays on him the iniquity of us all. Having just studied the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, I'm sure that this passage comes alive for you. Leviticus 16, that scapegoat be sent out into the wilderness. The high priest took two hands and he laid them on that scapegoat, confessing all of the sins and the guilt of the people of Israel. That goat would carry those sins away, never to be seen again. Upon this servant, God lays all the guilt and iniquity of his people The word laid is an interesting one to me. Its first usage, most frequently in the Old Testament, is actually translated to meat. And it's hard to translate in this passage. A good way to understand this, I believe, is that every iniquity and sin and transgression from all of God's people meet at this one spot. On this one man. All of the lust. All of the anger. The selfishness and arrogance. All of the murders. And adulterous thoughts and actions. All of the greed. Every act of gossip. Every act of slander and deceit. Everything comes down on this one man and then God crushes him for sin. All our iniquities come together. Wait upon wait upon wait upon wait on this one man who bore the price for our sins. How could this be anyone but Jesus? The high and the lifted up one who now stands risen and exalted at the hand of God. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, every sin, every iniquity, every wrongdoing we do 
separates us from a holy God. We can face nothing ourselves but the crushing. Unless we believe in this servant who came and who died as a substitute for our sins. If you're here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that this brief momentary reflection on his true, the nature of his true death would stir you again. Stir you in praise to the Lord. Maybe you would respond the way he tells them to in chapter 54 and verse 1. After all of this, he says, sing. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. We serve a great Savior. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for um, I thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters here today as we've walked through this text. I thank you for their attention. But we would be remiss without praising you for your own sacrifice of your son, your precious and beloved servant who came who bore every one of our trespasses and iniquities and who consequently was crushed. Whom you crushed to bring about the salvation of your people. Lord, I would pray today that our hearts would be stirred this Christmas season by knowing that this baby that we celebrate who came, came with a mission to save your people from their sins. Thank you, Lord, that this sprinkled blood is now upon many nations. Those who believe in Jesus Christ from every ethnicity, tribe, people, and tongue. Thank you for the salvation that extends to the coastlands so that all the world can rejoice. And I would pray for anyone here today who has never believed in the name of Jesus. I would pray, Lord, that they would see the seriousness of their sin today. See the way it separates them from God and recognize through your Spirit that their only hope is Jesus. We thank you, Lord, and pray that you would allow us to meditate further upon Isaiah 53 this week and next. In Jesus' name, amen.